This is Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Primal Screen is about movies, from the ones on the big screen to the ones you stream. Hope you enjoy the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. Welcome to Primal Screen, a Triple R film criticism show and podcast. I'm your host, Paul Anthony Nelson, and joining me in the virtual studio are Sally Christie. Hello, Paul. It's been been quite a while since we've seen each other virtually. Yeah, it's it's, <laughs> it's been it's been an age. It's it lovely has. to see you again. And our very special guest star for the second week in a row, Cerise Howard. Evening. How are we? Good. How are you doing? I'm fine. Fine and dandy. Fine and dandy. We love both of those things. Now, on tonight's show, we'll be providing you with a look inside the Melbourne Queer Film Festival's return to screens with the MQFF Together edition of Australia's biggest film festival for everyone under the Pride umbrella. First, we will chat to the festival's program director, Spiro Economos. Oh, no, no, don't do this. <laughs> Just got Economopolis, it right. Spiro Economopolis, about the program, uh, what it's like to see queer audiences in person again, and the residual effects the pandemic has had on um, running this most social of film festivals. Then Sally, Cerise and I will spotlight a selection of films from the festival that we've seen, and at the end of the show, we'll take a long-awaited trip to Swedish director Roy Andersson's typically deadpan and idiosyncratic vision of the world as we look at his latest film, about endlessness also as you listen to us chatting about these films tonight please feel free to hit us up on our social media channels and leave a comment just search for primal screen on facebook instagram and twitter but first let's welcome our guest so after this time last year finding itself one of the first film festivals maybe the first film festival to be forced online due to the uh, first round of COVID-19 social distancing lockdowns, the Melbourne Queer Film Festival now finds itself one of the first film festivals to make its triumphant return to cinemas, kicking off last Thursday night with the Irish 1990s set coming out rom-com Dating Amber. MQFF is currently screening 64 films across three venues, Carlton's Cinema Nova, Village Jam Factory in South Yarra, and at Village's Coburg Drive-In until the 21st of March. The festival's closing night film, the American romantic comedy Breaking Fast, set amongst the Muslim-American community, will be screening on Saturday night at Coburg Drive-In. And if you can't get out to cinemas for whatever reason, there are also 10 films screening online. Head to mqff.com.au to see what's on and grab your tickets. So kindly joining us here tonight to chat about all matters MQFF is the artistic Director, Program Director of the Melbourne Queer Film Festival, Spiro Economopoulos. Hey, hello. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm so excited. I, we are thrilled to have you, and I do apologise for butchering your surname. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. It's, one of, it's one of those things I say a million times to myself, and it's fine, but the old <laughs> performance anxiety kicks in. No, look, I, I need to say it in my own head even sometimes before I say it. Out. <laughs> so thank you uh, for taking the time to join us tonight, Spiro. So 
Um, my first question, I guess, is in a past life, I used to work with ACME, the Australian mm-hmm. Centre for the Moving Image, as you know, uh, which last until last year was the home of MQFF for many years. And yeah. it always struck me as almost the most social of film festivals, like even more than MIF. Um, there's always, always this sense that this was an annual opportunity for the LGBTQ plus community to get together not only to celebrate queer culture, but just to hang out, be together with friends in a safe and wel- welcoming public space and just spend all day watching movies that speak to their experiences and then grab a drink and have a lively chat afterwards. Yeah. So when, on the eve of this uh, festival last year, the whole thing had to be suddenly shut down. You, you're actually saying four days into the festival. Yeah, it was four days in basically. And it was our 30th anniversary as well on top of it. So it was this kind of special, you know, celebration that kind of, yeah, got shut four days into it. So, yeah, how did that affect everybody both behind the scenes and, and your audiences? And how has it felt to crawl, albeit somewhat cautiously, I'm sure, from the wreckage? Oh, look, it was in the beginning it was pretty... Uh, traumatic I think we're all a bit shell-shocked to be honest with you and I think it was all very new I mean COVID was just this thing that was kind of I was in denial to be honest with you for like the first part of it and kind of couldn't even fathom the idea that there could be a world where we're suddenly all going to be shut at home for a year like I've been working from home since last March basically so it was uh, yeah a little bit kind of yeah yeah sort of trauma and then I think slowly beginning to imagine what the festival space might look like virtually. And I think, as you were saying before, I think the big issue for us is that, you know, we're a a community-based film festival that is very much about us coming together in public, together in cinemas and having that communal shared experience. And we were were wondering, you know, what what is that going to be like for a queer audience to be doing that at home and can, can it work? So I think there are a lot of the questions we had looming over our head as we started kind of transitioning to virtual festivals. And we did a few little online events like Couch Critic and just started doing a few little bits and pieces to kind of just keep engagement with the audience, to be honest with you, because we were all, we're all at home, locked away. So and Melbourne in particular um, sort of had it fairly tough. And then now coming out of that into this, um, I guess, did you, uh, now this year's festival was put together pretty quickly, I imagine. Yeah. Um, it was announced three weeks ago. Yeah. Uh, what, I guess, um, did you always have a more agile plan in place for forced by last year's circumstances, knowing that you couldn't plan ahead for a festival as you normally could. Um, And what challenges did that present, both in terms of negotiating a safe COVID-era space, but also securing venues and putting on the show? Yeah, well, I mean, I think what we were thinking about um, this March program in particular was that we were going to come back with a, a smaller festival, essentially, and then do like a much bigger one later on in the year this year, like around October, November. Mm-hmm. Having said that, this smaller festival, I'm doing inverted com- commas, no one can see that, I'm doing air quotes, uh, is fairly big, but we did kind of think we wanted to sort of test that, I guess, because it was going to be the first time we are all going to be back in cinemas. Um, we've obviously got a bit of a virtual component to the festival still where if pe- for people who don't feel, you know, able or comfortable to come back into cinemas can watch stuff online. And, you know, I think every festival is having those questions at the moment whether that virtual component stays forever, you know, like whether it's something that really gets integrated into our festivals 
And, you know, I've, I thought a little bit about it when we were doing the online stuff and what that could look like. And initially I was really sort of thinking about it as a, you know, it could be where some of the retrospectives might go or the deeper focuses on directors, but it did end up opening up a little bit more. And I had a few sort of repeat screenings of stuff that are playing in cinemas and, you know, you get a mixed reaction from our audience. Part of them are really grateful that there's still stuff online and, other people really, you know, want to be back in cinemas and, you know, they're one of the, I mean, this first weekend that we've just gone through, I've been at the Nova mostly and been doing a lot of introductions and just engaging with audiences. We had a few, quite a few sold out houses, which is great. And the excitement of, you know, sort of the excitement level people have had about being back in cinemas has just been so fantastic. Mm-hmm. I've really love that energy again which is what I really missed and you can't get that virtually I mean you know with your um I know that you were saying before Spiro that you had quite a few events through um sort of pepper throughout last year online yeah was the response to them positive do you know were you getting good audiences for those online screenings and you know how did that kind of go down without that community aspect because I agree with both of you that's one thing I love about the queer film festival is And, you know, film festivals in general is, yeah. you know, being able to talk to people afterwards about film. Absolutely. Yeah, mm. it, it was interesting. I think in the, the first ones we did, and I think actually it was very much about where we were in terms of the lockdown. So, like, the first virtual mini festival we did, it was we were in, I think, stage four lockdown at that point. And, you know, there was a curfew at 8 p.m. and no one was going anywhere. So we had a we had a captive audience, you know, and so obviously that, first one did really well so we did like we were like oh wow this is you know there's a there's a future here thank god mm-hmm. and then the we did it again later on around sort of november and it it was okay but it wasn't as well um sort of re- i guess it didn't do as well as that first one did and by that point we had opened up again people were going back out and i just think it sort of yeah, I think that, you know, people just didn't want to be home anymore. I mean, I, I remember the first lockdown, I was like, Zoom drinks, yay, let's play Trivial Pursuit. The second lockdown, I was like, don't even invite me to Zoom drink because I'll kill you. So yeah, Exactly, I was I exactly think, the same. Yeah, so I think people just really kind of wanted to get out and I think that's what I really noticed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's it, Spira. Did you also find that in putting films online that you were reaching people who couldn't come at all? Or, or wouldn't because of any matter of accessibility issues, whether it's mobility or cost or the fact they're in a regional area or perhaps elsewhere in, in Australia or perhaps VPNing in from overseas yes. mischievously and naughtily. Yes. Yeah, no, we did. We did actually have that. And I think some, some of the feedback we did get, which is really interesting, is that we were reaching out to audiences that we've never had before, like around Australia, for example, and, and some members of the community that feel a little bit vulnerable and maybe not necessarily even comfortable about coming into a queer space in the cinema as well. So I think suddenly we were kind of reaching out to an audience that we didn't even know we sort of had, I guess, in a way. And so that was that was sort of interesting. But, you know, I was thinking about this a little bit today as well, and it's not, it's not just our queer film festival, but I think film festivals in general, I mean, like I love going to Myth, for example, and that kind of, it's a similar thing, that kind of communal shared experience. But... 
I think film festivals are about trying to make us as a community, you know, socialised and kind of actually getting out there. And there's a whole microcosm around our festival that really needs that. It would be at restaurants and bars and it's not just us coming to the cinema. There's a whole thing connected to it. And I think, you know, as much as I'm sort of grateful that we do have this option of the virtual thing, I, th I think still going into the cinemas for festivals is just so important. Mm -hmm. Completely agree. Preach. Yeah, preach, exactly. <laughs> um, now, uh, it may have been a little bit early for it to have an effect, but I was wondering, as for the films that were submitted this year, um, firstly, was there kind of a drop in numbers or is the field as stacked as before? I think actually it was, yeah, I, that, that was the mo the biggest thing I was really worried about initially when it all first happened. I was like, what the hell are we going to have? But I think what we're seeing now, and I have to admit, I'm, you know, the, I feel, anyway, I'm, the program we've got in March is really strong. There's some great films in there. And I think uh, I think what we're seeing is uh, a bit of a lag of stuff for one reason or another that couldn't come out as everyone's kind of wanting to get stuff out now. I do wonder, though, whether next year we might see not so much a lag or whether there will be content. It could, it could be a little bit more kind of thinner on the ground. And I think that's what I'm kind of sort of wondering at the moment. And... I did the, the Biennale European film market recently and it was all virtual mm. and it was kind of interesting seeing the stuff that is starting to come out there and I did see movies that were all like Zoom conversations and stuff like that. So I'm kind of beginning to think, oh, God, is that, are they the movies we're going to have next year? <laughs> Everyone's on Zoom. <laughs> yeah. Next year be the, the year to unspool the comprehensive Fassbinder retrospective. Well, that's it. Maybe it's about leaning into older works, 100%. Anything that's set outdoors and in, you know, outside lands, <laughs> masses of people kind of basically making out together uh, is pretty much my vibe in, t in terms of the kind of films I'll screen. Shot in cinemascope. Shot in uh, cinemascope. Just endless making out. Bumping saliva. proximity. Let's go for it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I guess, yeah, like did, did you find any that – at this point that sort of commented on the situation at hand either directly or indirectly or was it just a bit too early for that sort of content? Uh, we, we actually did uh, fund a group of short films. We did this project called Queer Lives in Isolation where we did get queer filmmakers to kind of respond to the pandemic and, you know, what it's like being, you know, queer under isolation and those circumstances. So we actually did fund some shorts and they're now beginning to appear um, online and we're going to maybe do something with them within the festival as well. But... Um, directly in the festival in terms of what we're screening at the moment, there is a short uh, in the, I think it's in the Guy and Guy shorts, uh, uh, by a filmmaker called Benjamin Rigby, which is very directly about um, an Australian person basically being stuck in LA and trying to do long distance, but the pandemic, which actually is a really great short. And uh, th that's probably the only one that we have that really kind of just pointedly, you know, is responding to that. Is that uh, Cinema Nova and um, uh, Alien Covenant Zone, Benjamin Rigby? It is that who sure we're talking about? Is. Yeah. It is. It, I think actually this is his directorial debut, in fact. So he's been writing a lot of stuff, but he wrote and directed this. And, yeah, it's a terrific short. So, um, you know, he's obviously in LA at the moment. So, I mean, he was really excited about it being in the program. That's fantastic. Um, 
I've noticed that there are obviously some huge big star titles on offer this year. There's Supernova with mm-hmm. Colin Firth and Stanley Tucci. Uh, there's Summerland uh, with uh, Gemma Arterton and Gugu Mbatha-Raw and The World to Come, which is yeah. a Western frontier romance with uh, Vanessa Kirby, Catherine Waterston, Casey Affleck and um, Christopher Abbott. Mm. As queer cinema is starting to move out of the micro-budget indie fridges and into this kind of star-laden festival darlings yeah. um, and often nominated for major awards. I'm wondering what impact this has had on you as a festival programmer. Are you having to wrestle myth for these kind of films and or has it given you the freedom to select riskier films knowing that these bigger films will draw in big crowds if they indeed do? I think it's a combination of both, actually. It has made me kind of feel uh, more adventurous in terms of looking for other stuff that we could be showing. And obviously, yeah, we're always, you know, you know, myth, we always, there are always some titles that myth will get and, you know, hey, you know, that, that happens and we can't we can't be miffed what can i say but that's that's fine because i think what but you can be miffed spirit you can be miffed (laughs) you know i was miffed in the beginning but i think what i realized very quickly into this uh, gig was that there are so many queer films out there and i think there is a you know obviously there is a bit of a mainstreaming of queer cinema in a way and you know we can see queer stories on netflix and you know everywhere but uh i think what i realized as well there is like nuances and complexities in queer stories that they're not all capturing and they're out there and us and that's the responsibility we have as a festival as well to present all those stories like it's a you know it's the diversity of that and I'm just talking about the storytelling alone that is something that you want to kind of capture as a queer film festival. Well, I'm definitely um, detecting uh, a spate at the moment of quality trans stories told yeah. with trans performers front and centre, yes. which I've got to tell you makes my little heart sing. Um, yeah. Uh, that the uh, arguments that have been part of some sort of little cultural war for some time about whether it matters, uh, the, the, this question of representation, trans yeah people on screen, behind the cameras as well. Um, Does it make a difference? Well, I I think the the proof is in the pudding and there are at at least three really classy uh, trans um, fictional films um, in in this year's program that um, we are well chew over a bit, I think, yet in this episode, but I'm... This is a pretty pretty wonderful development, and um, yes, there are some trans stories that have been big mainstream blockbusters, but they don't have the authenticity and yeah. could never strive for the authenticity that that certain yeah. of these films in the program have. Absolutely, and I think they also kind of put to rest a little bit some of them anyway. The idea that you know when when we're talking about casting, for example, that there aren't enough trans actors to casting your films. This is just not true anymore, and this is something that we kind of see now as a festival that it's actually not the case. So when I think whenever I hear that excuse, it's like, really? You know, there's some incredible performances there and you've, you know, obviously seen some of the films of screening, but um, I think um, it, yeah, there's, I don't know, there's just some really kind of rich kind of storytelling going on as well. Yeah, I think if, you know, the uh, director of Cowboys can find a 10-year-old trans actor, adult trans actors should be, you know mm-hmm. yeah and um, i think and i think the, the trans stories are also kind of moving into um you know I, it's very similar i think to what gay and lesbian stories were doing 20 years ago i suppose we were we were sort of in this kind of 
coming out sort of narrative kind of thing being the sort of headline stories that we're seeing. And then I think as that kind of went on and it became more nuanced and complex and problematic and that's where the excitement begins to happen in cinema. And I think trans cinema is beginning to hopefully get to that level now where we are seeing complexity and nuance. And I'm happy for things to be problematic as well as long as it's kind of interesting and gives a film a bit of energy and excitement, you know. Yeah, well, I mean, no two cultural settings are the same. Now, none of these fictional universes, which are not necessarily all that fictional either in some of these films, whether it's uh, the New Zealand film Rurangi or the uh, Brazilian film Valentina. Yeah, Um, such great films. And and they are still of, I think, of a type where, let's say, gay and lesbian stories where some time back where the transness is a, a problem of some sort that the narrative revolves around. Yeah. But increasingly, you know, with a coming of age of a of that cinema itself, I think perhaps more stories where the transness is a bit more incidental. Yeah, and I think there's a bit of an honesty that's being approached about these stories as well. There's no there's I think a lack of timidness as well, which I which I really love too. So as uh, we uh wrap up i wanted to ask you spiro are there any titles that uh you uh the people are sleeping on that you'd like to kind of direct audiences to i sure would (laughs) (laughs) oh this is what i do my intros like you gotta go and say you know uh well look i gotta i have to recommend uh an absolute i think it's a wonderful documentary called keyboard fantasies the beverly glenn Copeland story, which I think is sensational. And I, I didn't know much about this artist before um, I saw the doco and it very quickly became a, a staple of my, you know, you know, ISO playlist when I was at home listening to quite a lot. It's a really incredible documentary and a really amazing human being. I think the, it's a really wonderful kind of story. And I love the intergenerational stuff in it as well. I think it's it's these two different generations talking, musicians talking to each other and collaborating. It's it's so good. I, I, I adored it. And, um, I mean, the other one I think which is really interesting that I think people should seek out is um, the obituary of Tundi Johnson as well, which uh, kind of uses the kind of that sort of Groundhog Day time loop narrative to really interesting effect because it's dealing with... Um, uh, uh, you know, sort of very dark and very serious issues like, you know, um, young black gay men and sort of the way they're treated in America and, you know, police sort of shootings and stuff that is fairly dark. And I think I'm, I was just really intrigued by the way that filmmaker approached that subject matter through that narrative sort of conceit, I guess. Awesome. Spirit, thank you so much for joining us again tonight. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Oh, I loved it. Thank you so much for having me on. So if you would like to explore this year's MQFF Together program, head to the website at mqff.com.au to read up on the films and book your tickets. As we mentioned earlier, the festival runs until this Sunday, March 21st. You are listening to Primal Screen on Triple R. Triple R on FM, digital, online, via the app. Welcome back. You're listening to Primal Screen on Triple R with Sally Christie, Cerise Howard, and myself, Paul Anthony Nelson. So coming out from our interview with Melbourne Queer Film Festival uh, Program Director, Spira Economic 
Making a mob. We have a round table of films. I saw that look, Arcel. Uh, we, we thought we'd have a round table of films on offer at this year's MQFF Together Festival that we've seen. Cerise, as our special guest, uh, you can kick us off. What have you checked out and enjoyed? My name checked a couple just during the Sparrow interview. Um, a couple of films with trans protagonists, um, both sort of small town dramas. Uh, Rurangi by director Max Curry, a film from Aotearoa, New Zealand, my homeland. Uh, pretty terrific. Uh, it's, it's one of those sort of return to small town left mysteriously some years earlier type tales, whereas this time the surprise is not just, hey, I'm back, but also, hey, I'm trans, um, you know, I'm now a young trans man, and um, in this case, with the extra um, representational clout of being a young Maori actor. So um, it, it's set in a small dairy town. Um, there was a, a love from many years back uh, that may be rekindled, uh, notwithstanding the change of gender of the protagonist and confusion around that. There's familial dramas to have to resolve, and there's also a, a, a subplot about a closeted rugby player. Um, and, yeah, it's, it's pretty rich pickings. Occasionally there's a naivety about it, but... It's also charming and actually really moving. I found it really tremendously moving. Um, and likewise, a new Brazilian film. I was just going to say, mm. just before we jump into that, sure. uh, Ruangi, am I right that it's a web series that's been edited into a movie or it's a movie adaptation? Uh, I'm not series? totally sure, but I do understand it exists as a series as well as this mm. feature length, perhaps distillation from that series. But I'm just not sure, yeah, if the series was made for telly originally or as a web yeah, no, it's no. definitely a web series. I just didn't know whether oh, okay. it had been re-edited as a movie or remade. Yeah, I'm not sure, yeah. but it feels like a movie. It doesn't feel like something that's been shoehorned into into being a film. Yeah. Anyway, it, it certainly comes recommended. has quite a lot of heart um, and quite a bit of humour as well and certainly some some sadness and look, the gamut of, imagination, uh, imag- of emotions, the gamut, yes, a roller coaster, et cetera, et cetera, other cliches. Um Valentina, Brazilian film, uh, a young teen moves with mother to a small town, um, uh, hoping not to, uh, hope, hoping to be able to get an education, basically. Uh, the, the film's possible big moment is, well, this isn't spoiler territory, just uh, the little, as the credits roll, note that about 80 plus percent of school age trans people in Brazil don't get to finish school. There's just too great a societal, um, too much resistance towards trans folks just getting an education. Um, so this is basically that being dramatised through a, a young trans girl, Valentina, um, just trying to keep her transness a secret. Um, inevitably, there, there are some you know, additional dramas with an absent father. There's a need for his cooperation to get... Uh, Valentina's name on a school roll as Valentina and not as the name on a birth certificate and a lovely little uh, get to know the social fabric of a small town where perhaps the kids are actually kind of hip and groovy and it's just the parents who have issues and perhaps some of them are closet cases and just should sort their shit out. <laughs> also highly recommended. 
Nice. So it's uh, Ruangi and Valentina. Yeah. Um, I saw a similarly themed uh, film from the American indie treatment, a film called Cowboys, which stars um, Steve Zahn and uh, 90s indie darling Steve Zahn and uh, 2010s indie darling Gillian Bell as parents of a, uh, a trans child. Uh, um, or, and uh, uh, and um, basically... Uh, Mum, played by Gillian Bell, doesn't understand and thinks that her little girl is a girl. And um, despite um, uh, Joe, the the child, telling her otherwise, uh, and Steve Zahn as the dad who begins to, um, who you know, who gets it, who listens to his kid and is kind of seeing that it's that this is you know, this is who uh, her uh, his child is, um, and. It hits a kind of it hits a kind of an impasse where she um, 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 Joe feels stifled under uh, under his mum and can't live there anymore, and so uh, Steve Zahn decides to take her with him, kidnap him, and take him into the forest, and and kind of they they're making a run for Canada, um, and there's it's interesting it feels a bit shaky early on it for a while it seems to be kind of a fairly bog standard us indie drama just kind of ticking off events but once father and son go on the run it kicks into another gear and it deepens its characters gives them real humanity um presenting this untenable situation with no easy outs like steve zahn's character has um he's afflicted with mania so he takes pills for it and that's and so he he has a record in the past a criminal record for that so it's sort of it sort of builds up the reason like in a in a custody battle he can't afford he's he'd never get custody because of this and and all of this sort of stuff kind of comes out of it so it's characters kind of just seeing the only road available they feel is available to them um making terrible decisions but not seeing another way out um and it all makes it feel very real and deeply felt in the manner of the kind of the best American indie dramas. Um, there's a moment that kicks off the final act that feels a little deus ex machina and feels like it should have enough, um, should have more emotional resonance to the characters involved. Um, I won't spoil what that moment is, but um, it's, you know, something that sort of almost gets um, um, father and son caught. Um, um and that it seems more, it, all the characters involved seem more concerned with what this event means to the greater plot rather than the event itself, which is, uh, you know, pretty huge thing. But it, it resolves well, and but that moment kind of heightens the film to a, to a slightly distracting extent. But I did love the way it nods towards the conventions of the Western throughout the film. And Dowd shows up as a cop who's kind of chasing and um, at one point she gets on a horse. Uh, <laughs> it's it's kind of great um and yeah and uh, the child uh, joe is played by uh sasha knight who's a 10 year old trans actor um which is great as well um and i also love the double meaning of the title cowboys as well um i also saw the greenhouse which is a new australian film it's a really intriguing kind of story and this is um grieving the death of her mother uh lillian um Beth wakes one night to find a portal to the past in the forest surrounding her family home, swept away by visions of her, her idyllic upbringing with her three siblings and two loving mums. Beth becomes mesmerized by the past, unable to see the dangers that lie ahead. Um, there's lots of great ideas for this film. It's obviously a micro budget film. I absolutely loved its ambition and, and at times its execution. 
Um, it's a family drama about grief that gradually phases through different genres. Um, like it becomes a sci-fi film, even tips over into horror um, later in the film. Um, a little jarringly, the tra- it doesn't always manage the transition smoothly, but I hugely admired what it was doing. Um, performances are pretty strong across the board. Uh, the car with the cast playing this very mixed family. Yeah, he has two mums and four adopted kids of different races and different sexual orientations. Um, I love that the sexual sexuality of the characters is just part of the mosaic of the film. It informs its characters, but it's never what the film is about. It's a story about a, a family processing the grief of the death of one of their mums. Um, and you do the way it's performed and written, you do feel like you're eavesdropping on family conversations at times. It does feel like a very natural family dynamic. Um, having said that though it is kind of glacially paced through the middle of the film and the second act kind of oscillates between creating intrigue and painting in detail and also spinning its wheels and feeling like it's repeating itself a bit Um, but while I went through mixed emotions watching it I was a big fan of its complexity and yeah loved what it was trying to do Um, so that's The Greenhouse and uh, a film that we all saw and I think we all had a pretty positive reaction to was a documentary called P.S. Burn This Letter, Please, which is involves a box of letters held in secret for nearly 10, 60 years, um, which ignites a five-year exploration into a part of LGBT history that has never been told. The letters open a window into a forgotten world where being yourself meant breaking the law and where the penalties for masquerading as, or inverted commas, masquerading as a woman were swift and severe. And so it sort of uncovers this, 50, not in, this drag scene in the 1950s. Um, Sal? Um, I was really, really very smitten with this documentary, um, to be honest. I, I just adored it. It was uh, so interesting, I think, to see older queer people have a voice and tell their stories on screen. And it really made me think about, I guess, the importance of film where we have that opportunity to capture this. And they, they do talk about this a, a little in the documentary, um, you know, to capture people's stories that perhaps might not have been told. And the whole premise of the film is fascinating where, you know, these letters have been found and they've sort of, you know, tracked these people that were in this um, this drag circle in, in New York down to talk about their experiences. But it was so gorgeous and so beautiful to hear these stories um, you know, really joyous stories. There's really beautiful moments where, you know, photographs are shown to people talking that they haven't seen in years and this this emotion that comes over them. And, um, yeah, it was just absolutely gorgeous. I can't recommend this highly enough, to be honest. It was, I think, one of the best documentaries I've seen in a long time. Um, another thing that I really loved about this was seeing the language that was used in this. I mean, we've seen you know, documentaries like The Queen, which was, did The Queen play at MIF last year as a retrospective year or year before? Year before. Mm-hmm. And, of course, um, Paris is burning. And this terminology that, you know, from my very limited knowledge of the drag scene, which I think, you know, sort of comes out of Paris is burning, was being used in the 1950s. And I found that so fascinating that this, you know, this language, this secret kind of language has been there this whole time. And, you know, it's becoming, I guess, quite, a, you know, in our mainstream now, but that was really fascinating to me, but this was gorgeous. Yeah. It's really interesting that the, all this correspondence was hidden for so long that, that it, it spoke to um, 
activities and desires that uh, were not just taboo, but illegal. And yet I think average, common, everyday American, should they have stumbled across any of these letters, wouldn't have understood them at all. Exactly, <laughs> because, yeah. you know, we might be quite familiar with some of the, the vernacular by now, but, um, you know, back then it's hard to imagine straight society understanding what any of it was about. Which is but, the Yeah, it is, exactly. Um, amazing archival footage in this film, some of it clearly referencing the people uh, whose correspondences are being read and whom we're getting, re getting acquainted with in close to the current day, but others just drawn from, well, it was an extraordinary list of archives in the closing credits, and you just realise that a lot of it is... Uh, archival content matched thematically rather than, say, factually. But there was also plenty of, you know, mercifully, uh, actual photographic and, and filmic evidence of these people's lives, um, the sort of material that actually would have been directly more damning um, than probably those letters ever would because the images, again, they may have required a, a, a little bit of an education to read them, to understand that these these women were perhaps sometimes anything from, and the terminology here varied amongst them, mm. queens to female impersonators to what my favourite term, I'd never heard this one before, femme mimic. Yeah, I hadn't heard that mm. one either. I found that really fascinating too how um, there was a, a lot of the subjects on this documentary talking about the term drag queen and they found it offensive. They still mm. find it offensive and, they, yeah. yeah, that femme mimic one I hadn't heard. So, yeah, really fascinating. It's the, uh, the lesser-known chapter in the Mimic sci-fi horror series. Um, <laughs> a, yeah, I thought this was beautiful. Um, and it's kind of intoxicating to see that this existed and sort of flourished, albeit in the underground, um, in, the, in the 50s. And like you say, Sal, terms like mopping and trade and all this sort of stuff mm -hmm. being used in the 50s um, was, was, was really astonishing. Um, and I like that this sort of era of drag performance existed on the uneasy fringes of a society that still outlawed many homosexual acts, but paradoxically also became this magnet for celebrities, tourists, and those in the know to kind of mm. check out these shows, particularly at the, um, the 82 club. Yeah, um, yep. And, um, and and sort of you know you're seeing these giant stars like Liz Taylor and Richard Burton and Warren Beatty uh, and and Natalie Wood coming to these gigs, um, the and the error is of course recalled by the performers themselves who um, the letters have written out read out in voiceover but also you've got this kind of um, the filmmakers tracked everyone down through the archives it's almost like a bit of detective work finding everybody and there's a there's some wonderful, I like the way this film uses mystery as well, the way it doesn't reveal who certain people are, and including the identity of Reno Martin, who is the guy um, who I, I won't spoil here, but um, anyone who, like me, who spent the 90s reading Variety <laughs> and, like, reading trade papers knows exactly who this guy was, <laughs> and he's a massive Hollywood name um, in his field. Um, but yeah, but, and, and of course these, these wonderful new interviews and hearing about, you know, one particular mopping heist that involved a bunch oh, of so fantastic yeah, $1,000 wigs. Um, yeah, it was just fantastic. So many fascinating stories told by wonderful people, um, reclaiming these lives they'd had to conceal for so long. Um, so that film is PS burn this letter, please. 
So Ruangi, Valentina, Cowboys, The Greenhouse, and P.S. Burn This Letter, Please, and many more films can be seen at MQFF, the Melbourne Queer Film Festival, right now. Head to mqff.com.au for tickets and times. You're listening to Primal Screen on Triple R. Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. You're listening to Primal Screen on Triple R with Cerise Howard, Sally Christie, and myself, Paul Anthony Nelson. Det är inte fantastiskt ändå. Det är två. Allt. Allt. Allt är fantastiskt. Det har jag. He's just saying everything is fantastic. Um, and everyone's <laughs> reacting fairly nonplussed. <laughs> About Endlessness is the sixth and allegedly last feature film to be directed by Roy Anderson. A reflection on human life in all its beauty and cruelty, its splendor and banality. Gently guided by our Sherazade-esque narrator, we wander dreamlike through inconsequential moments as they take on the same significance as historical events. A couple floats over a a war-torn cologne, a priest losing his faith sees a psychiatrist and downs half the church wine bottle, a father stops to tie his daughter's shoelaces in the pouring rain on the way to a birthday party, teenage girls dance outside a cafe, a defeated army marches to a prisoner of war camp. Simultaneously, an ode and a lament about an endlessness presents a kaleidoscope of all that is eternally human, an infinite story of the vulnerability of existence. Cerise, Roy Roy Anderson's films see the world as a grey, ashen-faced tragicomedy of the never-ending, everyday absurdity of being human. Feel you found a kindred spirit? Oh, yeah. Like, me me and Roy, we go back a ways. Um, It's his... Like he's now 78. He's not mellowing by any any stretch of the imagination, still contemplating existential agonies in his own extremely singular and semi-removed, semi-detached sort of way. His films are not unlike watching a, a Magritte painting slowly reveal something of the sad, desperately pathetic inner life of something, someone captured within it. And and they juxtapose, you know, often playing out as vignettes, juxtapose something of extreme seeming inconsequentiality with uh, you know, a scene of, you know, in this case we catch a little bit of Hitler and not exactly a bunker, probably, you know, Hitler towards the end of, of things, um, just in a, a room full of despondent Nazis. And it's given the same weighting. Everything is sort of weightless, but also... In, in ineffably appalling and dreary and dreadful and beige and extremely bleak. And if you're in attuned to it, if you're in the perhaps a combination of have a certain sensibility and are in an appropriate mood, the films can be quite hilarious. Um, sometimes it's a cumulative thing. You, you think, no, I'm, I'm just not, not getting it until finally something. You, you, I find... This one broke me rather later into the film than some of his earlier films did, like You the Living and Songs from the Second Floor, which are both just exquisite and excruciating and pitch black in their humour. And also sometimes screamingly inconsequential. 
there's always these through lines in his his film, and not, not least is this very sustained aesthetic, you know, very static um, scenes, exquisitely painterly mise-en-scene, extremely dreary, unengaged people, except for every now and again, little bursts of action. Um, yeah, I, I, I find... I find him singularly hilarious. And there are a few filmmakers with similar sensibilities working in that deadpan area. I think of Aki Karasmaki, the, the great Finnish auteur, famous for Leningrad cowboys and umpteen films of mostly sort of loser types and, and working class uh, strugglers and, um, and, you know, just marginalised people leading lives of seemingly little impact but also little impact upon themselves it seems often just this this deadpan thing um maybe is it for everyone i don't know if it was for you two as well but for those who, who it works for you know the palestinian filmmaker elias suleiman also is another one who just mm -hmm. stands in this sort of territory and and milks it for all it's it's worth it he often populates his films with himself and is just this character who's, who stands by watching mutely as absurdity unfolds around him in a particularly Palestinian context, typically. Here, Sweden just gets a skewering in the most um, <laughs> Swedish society. Roy Anderson is just unsparing. And, and it's funny how often in his films, at some point, there'll be a reference to Sweden's um, not, not quite having really made peace with its Oh, that little bit of a Nazi collaborative past that no one generally wants to talk about. Storm, stay storm, everyone. Stay storm, Sweden. Yeah, I, I found um, that this really didn't it's It's interesting to go into his films as a viewer to focus on small moments in cinema. Uh, which I think can often be challenging because, you know, we're used to cinema presenting us with these huge grand moments um, or working up to these huge grand moments. And about Endlessness has so many very, very tiny moments that it's like, oh, how do I, how do I sit with that? How do I sit with that as a viewer? I think early on in the film there's one that is just, uh, I, I think would not even be 60 seconds worth of a woman that... Oh God! How does he put it? Um, a woman that has no empathy, or something like oh, that. No shame. Um, yes, that was yeah. it. A woman that has no shame, and yeah. then that, that's it. Then we move on, and it's like, yeah. okay, so this is this this really tiny piece that I, I I have I sit with as a viewer rather than building up to something large. And then there are really large moments in the in this film as well, um, and in this you know huge, beautiful sort of devastating landscape as well that we have these small moments. So I found that, yeah, a really interesting, kind of almost challenging as a, as a viewer to watch this and, you know, I guess switch from how I'm normally used to consuming and reading cinema. Mm. And, yeah, it was, it was really gorgeous, absolutely beautiful, stunning, you know, everything about it was beautiful. And like you said, Cerise, there's points of this film which are howlingly funny and, um, yeah, there's other points which just made me feel like I was going to burst into tears. <laughs> so it really he, he does do such an amazing job of capturing what, you know, his intention is here and, yeah, doing it in a really unusual, beautiful, exquisite way that we, we're not used to seeing. And definitely this is something to see at the cinema. If you get a chance, it 
yeah, needs to be seen on a big screen for sure. Yeah, I don't know if it suffered a little from watching on TV, but he's such a fascinating filmmaker and he has this astonishing process. I'm not sure if you're aware, but all of his films are shot entirely in a studio. And when I say a studio, it's like in a building in Stockholm, like not like a soundstage. It's like a building on a city street in Stockholm. And he's built this interior studio. Every Like even the ones you think are exteriors are not They're completely created inside. And he uses green screen, but he doesn't use CGI. All of the, the backgrounds are miniatures and mm-hmm. painted and constructed in miniature. And then it's forced perspective and compositing, um, good old-fashioned matte compositing. Um, I could watch a video of him and his crew making these films all day. It's fascinating. Um, there are some on YouTube. But as well as being technically astonishing, um, I find they're always this sort of, they seem grim, but they're always deceptively enjoyable. And his mm. last film, A Pigeon Sat on a Branch Contemplating Existence, is my favourite. And I think it's actually hilarious at times. I think about Endlessness sees him in a much more sombre and reflective mood. It just it didn't seem as funny as the other ones. Um, it still retains that deadpan outlook on the world and looks from a distance at the absurdity of being human, but it's not nearly as humorous, although there is humour in it. It really puts the tragic into tragic comedy. But but there but yeah there are moments that disarm you it has this same keen eye and at 78 minutes it's it's still a delight it is endlessly fascinating sometimes perplexing always engaging um yeah the what he the the amount of human experience he packs into this 78 minute film is incredible but yeah it's all sort of locked off tableau shots completely artificially created um and with with these characters that he calls Mr. and Mrs. Nobody, not in the film, but like he's been interviewed and he kind of they're they're sort of nobody characters is how he refers to them. Um, it's beautiful stuff. So Roy Anderson's About Endlessness is now screening at uh, selected independent cinemas. You're listening to the Primal Screen on Triple R. Triple R. You've been listening to Primal Screen on Triple R with Sally Christie, Cerise Howard, and myself, Paul Anthony Nelson. We chatted to Spiro Economopa. I'm doing it again every time. Why does this always happen to me on air? Spiro Economopolis. Artistic director. I'm sorry, sorry, Spiro. um, uh, Program director of the Melbourne Queer Film Festival. We discussed a variety of MQFF Together titles, including Ruangi, Valentina, Cowboys, The Greenhouse, P.S. Burn This Letter, Please. To see these and more, head to mqff.com.au for session times and tickets. And we also reviewed about endlessness and now screening at selected independent cinemas. You can listen back to the show within half an hour on Triple R On Demand or check out the songs we played on the Primal Screen page at rrr.org.au right now. You can also subscribe to the Primal Screen podcast via iTunes or wherever else you find your favourite podcasts. Next week, our heroes will be reviewing a trio of new releases, including director Shaka King's Jesus and the Black Messiah, director Amy Poehler's Moxie, and a third player to be named later. A huge thank you to Morty Osborne for editing the Primal Screen podcast, Kelly Carl Chapman for panelling the show, Thanks for listening to Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. 